week 36 of our Gospel of John series. And we come, or when we come to John chapters 13 through 17, as you have heard many times already, we come to a text that takes place all in one night. So it is Thursday night of Passover week. It's the night in which our Lord met with his disciples in order to celebrate the Passover. And of course, in the midst of that, he transformed the Passover into the Lord's Supper. It is the night in which Judas would betray Jesus. Peter would deny him. It's the night in which Jesus would go to the garden. He would pray, not my will, but yours be done. He would be arrested and put on trial. In the midst of all of that, let me ask you a question. In the midst of all of that, what is on the heart of Jesus that night? And the answer is his disciples. His disciples. He, he gives them teaching after teaching to prepare their hearts, their minds, and their lives for what is quickly coming. And we call this the upper room discourse where Jesus is just pouring into them. And all of these teachings of the upper room discourse we have broken up into seven weeks. But the, the disciples themselves got it in a few short hours. So this was literally drinking from a fire hose. I mean, they were literally just getting it all in just a, a matter of hours. And just think about the teachings you've heard already. And then imagine that you're listening to a sermon, maybe like today, and imagine a pastor asked the congregation, like I'm asking you now, how many of you truly believe you can live life on your own? Imagine looking around and realizing not one hand is going up. Because no one would ever confess that. No one would ever confess that they believe that. What Christian would actually say that we can go through the winds and waves of this life on our own? Let me say this. Although none of us would ever admit it, many of us try it. We try it. We try to handle things on our own. We try by our actions not by our words to do things in our lives that only God can do and when we do so we are claiming that we don't need a savior we don't need a sustainer we don't need a helper we don't need a friend and this isn't or wasn't not it's not only our temptation it was the disciples temptation so Jesus teaches his disciples about the vine and the branches and for you see branches don't have to try to stay connected to the vine they just do the only way branches become detached from the vine is if someone or something detaches them. But not so with us. We are strange branches that are prone to wonder. We are prone to leave the vine. Staying put in the vine is hard for us because we are daily tempted that we don't need anyone or anything but ourselves. Or we're, we're tempted that we must give our lives to doing instead of give our lives to becoming. And so we do instead of becoming. So let's jump into John 15. And as we read this, remember, Jesus is hours away from hanging on a cross. And he's saying these things in this moment, continually going after the heart of his disciples going after their heart, preparing them for what's to come. So if you're willing and able to stand, I'm going to ask you to do so with me as we read the words of Jesus. They're all read. 
John 15, verses 1 through 17, and Jesus says this, I am the true vine, my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, than that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, and so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Let's pray. Father, just speak to us today by the words of Christ, that we would be branches that abide in you and you in us. Lord, we pray this very moment that you would give us eyes to see, Give us ears to hear. May your word find good soil in our hearts and may it bear fruit, which is your purpose for us as we just read. Speak, O God, in Jesus' name, amen, and you may be seated. So have you ever taken time to just think about the words of Jesus, that none of the teachings of Jesus ever happen in a vacuum? Meaning that every time Jesus spoke, he is not just blurting out some random and unrelated thoughts. You know, if we're not careful, we miss the correlation between the words of Jesus and the events or the settings that prompted his words. For instance, in John chapter 6, what led Jesus to say, I am the bread of life? Now, if we go back to John 6, we realize that Jesus had just multiplied a few loaves of bread, fish for a multitude to feed fifteen to 20,000 people. In the midst of their amazement, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Why in the middle of a conversation in John 8 does Jesus say, I am the light of the world? And as we address, they were in the middle, the Jewish people were in the middle of celebrating the festival of lights. And the court of the temple would have been lit up with lights. And in the midst of this, Jesus says, I am the only light of the world. Or why in John 11 did Jesus say, I am the resurrection and the life? And of course, we, we read and know that Lazarus, the one who Jesus loved, along with his sisters, Mary and Martha, had died. And Jesus loved them. And he went to 
Mary and Martha, whose hearts were breaking, and he says to them, I am the resurrection and the life. There's always context to his words. There's always purpose. So when we come to John 15, this is the last of seven I am statements declared by Jesus. What prompts Jesus to say, I am the true vine? Just a quick nugget here. This final I am statement is the only one of the seven where Christ makes God the Father an explicit part of the metaphor. So this is the only one where God the Father is a part of it. But here's what I want you to see at the very end of chapter 14. Brother Dave covered last week, the very end of chapter 14, the very last words of chapter 14, Jesus says this, Rise, let us go from here. Which... Interestingly enough, is a call to arms. Jesus is telling his disciples, let us go meet the enemy on the field of battle. But here's what I believe, and many scholars believe, it appears that our Lord and the 11 remaining disciples now leave the upper room. And they're now headed to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus would pray, of course, the words, not my will, but yours be done. But on the way to the Garden, two things could have happened that led to Jesus' teaching on the vine and the branches. The first is they could have taken a path that led them right in front of the temple of Herod. Well, the temple of Herod, on the very front of the temple, were two gold-plated doors, and on each gold-plated door, there were the symbol of Israel, golden vines that covered the, the doors. So as Jesus walked by the temple, he could have looked at the doors and began to talk about the vine and the branches. The other thought is that maybe Jesus led his disciples through the vineyards that grew all throughout Jerusalem. Either path could have been a perfect visual illustration for this teaching. And there's some imagery here that probably doesn't strike us like it would have struck first century Jews. For when Jesus says, I am the true vine, this was a phrase loaded with meaning because in the Old Testament, the imagery of the vine always pointed to Israel. It was always God's people. And every time it's used in the Old Testament, it's used in a negative light. We look at Psalm 80 and Isaiah 5. It was always accompanied by the declaration as you are a vine that was supposed to bear good fruit and instead you have bore wild grapes. It's the declaration against them. Yet Jesus here is turning it all upside down, or I would say this, he's turning it right side up. And he's saying, I am doing what Israel couldn't do. I am becoming what Israel could not become. I am the blessing to the world that they could never be. So I want us to unpack four related truths to Jesus as the true vine. First of all, because Jesus is the true vine, number one, we must personally be found in him. We must personally be found in him. Look at verse 1 again. It says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Jesus is the vine. He is what we cannot be. As much as we strive, as much as we work, as hard as we attempt to be moral, upright, good people, we always fall short every time. And that's not just my story, that's all of our stories. So being found in him does not mean that we learn what God wants us to do and we do it. No, being found in him means that we personally believe what God has already done for us in Christ Jesus. In essence, what Jesus is saying here, don't miss this. Jesus is saying, you are the branch, 
And you can't be anything but a branch. That's all you can be. Jesus is looking at the disciples and us, and he's saying this. In case you think too highly of yourself, you're twigs. That's what you are. You are twigs. But then Jesus basically says this. But, but don't, don't worry, because I'm the vine. You don't have to be anything but branches or twigs. I am the vine. It has been said this, blessed is the person who knows that there is only one God and who has stopped applying for his position. Blessed is the person who stops applying for the position of God. We have a God and we are not it. We are branches. Then listen to verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. He removes. He shows it never being a part. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. So since Jesus is doing in us what we cannot do for ourselves, we can expect, according to Jesus, pruning. Now, none of us saw that coming, right? We would think Jesus would say, hey, I'm the vine, you're the branches, expect blessing. But he says, no, I'm the vine, you're the branches, expect pruning. In order for, for God to do his work in us, to be a Christian is to bear fruit. And if there is no fruit, according to Jesus, there is no genuine faith, and you get cut off. Yet if there is fruit, Jesus says, you will be cut back. And the question that rises in our minds is, that if we're bearing fruit, then why would God the Father prune us? Why would he cut us back? And the answer is, so that we might bear more fruit. So that we will bear more and more fruit. And what is that fruit? What does it mean to be fruitful? Well, in Romans 1 to be fruitful, according to Paul, is to win others to Christ. According to Romans 6, to be fruitful is to grow in holiness and obedience in your life. According to Romans 15, to be fruitful is to give your life as a Christian to, to giving. And that giving is fruit. Of course, Galatians 5, we're about to look at that in just a second. The fruit of the Spirit is the kind of Christian character produced in us by the Spirit that brings glory to God. Even our good works, according to Colossians 1, our service grows out of us abiding in Christ. It's, it's a picture of fruit. Praise from our lips is a picture in Hebrews 14 of fruit. So this is what it means to have a fruitful life, or just some of the things it means to have a fruitful life. But just think about Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. But notice here, Paul says the fruit of the Spirit, not fruits of the Spirit. Here's what we do. We break them apart as fruits, and we say, well, I'm good at this one. I'm good at that one. I'm terrible at this one, but hey, that don't matter. I'm good at this one, bad at this one. And we kind of separate them, and here's what we do. And saying that, we are revealing that that is something that we are trying to do on our own, apart from the working of Christ in us. And anytime we do that, there will always be missing links. Follow with me here. If you lack the Spirit of God in your life, you will not know love. If you don't know love, you probably aren't walking in real joy. If you lack joy, you're probably lacking in peace. If you don't have peace, you probably aren't very patient with others and if you aren't patient with others you're probably not very kind and when you're not very kind it means that you're not you're not or you're lacking in goodness faithfulness gentleness and self-control 
Now, I know there's not a person here where we hear Galatians 5, we think, nailing them, got them all, 10 for 10. I'm at the 10 of, of the top of the, the fruit. Every single one is a 10 out of 10 for me. None of us are thinking that. I get that. I know that. But here's the reality. If you are a child of God in this room, you are not where God wants you to be, but praise God, you are not what you used to be. You are not what you used to be. And here's the, the picture I want you to see and what I want to understand. Therefore, the Lord in his kindness prunes us so that we might grow in these areas. And here is a beautiful picture of all the acts that a vine dresser or a gardener does with the vine. He is closest to the vine when he is pruning it. He can water the vine from a distance. He can fertilize the vine kind of from a, a distance, but is when he is pruning that he gets very, very close. So brothers and sisters, when pruning happens in our lives, understand how close we are in that moment to him. Let me just put it this way. The gardener will take out of our lives those things that are a loss if we keep them, but a gain if we lose them. And therefore, he will cut them away. And I know putting these truths upon us right now, it doesn't sound very good. Some of us are going, that doesn't sound good at all. It sounds bad, but don't quit just yet. Look at verse 2, or excuse me, verse 3. Already, Jesus says, you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. So the disciples' cleansing came through the word of Christ. They believed the word. They were cleansed. We believe the word. We are cleansed. It's the same picture. Because of that, we are clean. We are found in him. We are pruned. We are clean. Yet let me say this. Let me confess for all of us. We don't always feel clean, do we? We mess up. We make mistakes. And here's what I know. It's human nature that if we believe that, if I believe I've offended you, human nature is I avoid you. I avoid you. And what Jesus is saying here is this, you're clean, therefore, don't avoid me. Don't avoid me. We don't have to clean ourselves up and then come to Jesus saying, look what I've done. No, we bring ourselves just as we are to Jesus, and he cleans us up. It's what he does for us. As children of God, don't avoid him. Don't run from him. Him, in your guilt and shame, run to him, regardless of how you feel, regardless of what you have done, and you will be clean. Read 1 John 1, 9, it tells us that. Therefore, have you been found in him? Have you been cleansed by him? Are you avoiding him? If you are avoiding him, you picked a bad place to come this morning. Pick the bad place to be today. So we must personally be found in him. But secondly, we must continually abide in him. We must abide in him. And this is when it gets really, really good. Because Jesus says in verse 4 and 5, you see on the screen, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The branch can only live as it's connected to the vine. There's no life. 
for the branch apart from the vine. In the same way, there is no spiritual life in ourselves apart from Jesus, apart from his life flowing in us and through us. And if you're taking notes, write this down. The word abide there literally means, we read it 10 times here, it literally means to make your home in. To make your home in. So we are to abide in him. In fact, let me look at verse 7. Verse 7 goes on to say this. If you abide in me, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Verse, verse 9. As the Father loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Are we abiding in his word? Is his word at home in us? Are we abiding in his love? And the question for us is, are we at home in Christ? And is his word at home in us? Let me just say this. How how do we allow God's word to abide in us? God's word cannot abide in you, number one, if you aren't reading his word. And then we don't just read his word to check off a list and then move on about our day. No, we have to meditate upon his word. Meaning every day we have small passages of scripture and what we need to do, what I want to encourage you to do is not just read them and check them off. At least find one verse that you can meditate upon all day. That you can just think about. Maybe you write it down. Maybe you memorize it and just think about it. This week it was, for me, many different ones, but the one that stands out was Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in me will be faithful to complete it. And there were times in that day where I had to say, God, you're not done with me. Praise God. <laughs> Thank you. You will finish what you started, though I try to mess it up so much in my life. We have to meditate upon his word and place ourselves in a place where we can obey his word. Imagine this. Imagine if I planted a tree in the front yard, and two weeks later I go, no, I don't like it here. I'm going to plant it in the backyard. So I plant it in the backyard, and three weeks later I go, I don't like it there. I like it on the side yard. I think it would look better. So I dig it up again, put it on the side of the yard, and then two weeks later I think it would really look better in the front of the yard. So I did that again and did that whole process again. Here's the deal. Eventually that tree would not only fail, or fail to flourish, excuse me, it would be terrible and probably threaten even its survival. And yet, if we're not careful, brothers and sisters, that's how we are with God. We only plant ourselves or abide in him when we think we need him, not failing to realize that there's not a moment in our lives that we don't need him. There's not a moment in our lives that we aren't absolutely threatened by all the things of this world if we are apart from him. Are you abiding in him? Are you abiding in his love? Is his love at home? And you look at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. What an amazing statement. Think about the Father's love for the Son. We can't even comprehend that. And Jesus says, make your home in that. Make your home in that. Rest in that. That God's love for us isn't given to us as a reward for what we've done is given to us as a gift in spite of who we are. Let me say it again because I didn't seem to get you. God's love for us hasn't been given to us as a reward for what we've done. It's been given to us as a gift in spite of who we are, in spite of what we have done. The challenge of Christianity for you and for me is this. The challenge for Christianity is not earning God's love. The challenge for Christianity is believing that God loves me in spite of all that I've done. That's the challenge. To believe that God loves me and has given that love to me as a gift. 
as a gift. And of course, that sounds contrary to what then the next verse, verse 10, tells us because verse 10 then says this, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So think about this. Did Jesus earn the love of God, or did Jesus already have the love of the Father? Now, we know he already had the love of the Father, but we have a hard time understanding this text or texts like this because we read it wrong. We read it as if to say, Jesus is saying, well, if you love me, if you obey me, then I'll love you. If you do what I tell you to do, then I will love you. But that's not what it says. It is abide in me, grow in your love for me, and as you grow in your love for me, you will obey me. You will obey me. That's a common thing that will happen. Someone put it this way. Jesus' commands are like wires that are connected to and running from the love of God. The commands do not produce love or obedience. Instead, they are an outworking of receiving and abiding in the love that Christ already has for us. Do you know that? Are you walking in that? Is there obedience attached to the love that you profess to have for God? Is there obedience attached to that love? For you see, words that we give without action have never been acceptable to Jesus. Let me say it again. Words that we give without action have never been acceptable to Christ. Here's what we learn as kids. We learn to say exactly what we think our parents want us to say. That's what we learn to do. We learn to tell our parents exactly what we, and, and we think we're good at it. We think we're slick, and some parents are stupid, and they believe it every single thing, and that's, that, that's a whole another issue for a whole another day. But here's the deal. It might work with silly mommy and daddy, but it won't work with Jesus. It won't work with him so therefore listen when we say to our kids go clean your room they know better than to come back to us two hours after the fact and say hey mom and dad i memorized what you told me go clean my room that wouldn't be good enough for us in the same way they wouldn't come back to us and say hey mom and dad i memorized what you said in hebrew and greek both biblical languages i've got it or they wouldn't come back and say mom and dad I'm going to get together with friends once a week, every week for the next six weeks, and talk about what it would look like if I cleaned my room. No, the reality is that wouldn't work for us. Just go and clean your room. And if that thinking wouldn't work for us, hear this, it doesn't work for Jesus. And here's what I'm convinced of, brothers and sisters, and please hear my heart. We are so good. At taking the commands of Jesus, we get together, we talk about them, we break them down, we get in a group and we talk about it, but here's what we never do, we don't do it. We don't do it. We talk about it, we can break it down, we have it here, but the world doesn't know because we never do it. Oh God, may you deliver us from things that we say with our mouth that aren't active in our lives. Oh, may God deliver us in this moment. Some of you are thinking, I don't like all this talk about commandments. Let me just say this. As a parent, we don't give our children commands so, they, so that they will be our children. We give our children commands because they are our children. And in that moment, we don't care what every other bad parent is letting their kids do. We know what's best for our children. We know what God's word says is best for our kids. And that's all that matters in that moment. But think about this. Therefore, as we abide in his love for us, 
we will abide in obedience to his word because his word abides in us. And ultimately, abiding in him produces fruit, hear this, and abandoning him produces nothing. For look at verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. I don't know if you caught the progression of this text, but Jesus goes from bearing no fruit to bearing fruit to bearing more fruit to bearing much fruit, which is the goal. And then Jesus says this, for apart from me, you can do some things, right? Is that what he says? Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Nothing. Now, let me just press in here. Nothing doesn't mean nothing. Because a lot of people who aren't connected to Jesus do a lot of things in our world, even religious things. But write this down. Nothing here means nothing of eternal value. You can't do anything of eternal value, anything that will last forever, you can't do apart from him. Now, one pastor put it this way, in thinking about our need for Jesus, suppose that you are totally paralyzed and you can do nothing for yourself but talk. And suppose a strong and reliable friend has promised to live with you and do whatever you need them to do. How would you glorify this friend if a stranger showed up to see you? Would you glorify that stranger's generosity and strength by trying to get out of bed on your own and trying to carry your friend? No. You would glorify that friend by saying, even in the presence of this stranger, please come and lift me up. Would you put a pillow behind me, please, so I can look at my guest? Or you would just say this to your strong friend, please help me. Help me. And so your visitor would learn from your request that you are helpless and that your friend is strong and kind and good. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we don't glorify Jesus best by saying, I can do this on my own. We glorify Jesus best by saying, I can't. Jesus, help me. Help me. Help me. Are we giving ourselves to the one who is our helper? Are we giving ourselves to the one who is able to accomplish eternal things in us and through us? Things that will last forever. Which again begs the question, are you at home in Christ and is Christ at home in you? See, that's a different question, right? It's easy for us to go, yeah, I'm good with Jesus. I'm good with him. Is he good with you? Is he good in your life? Is he at home in every part of your life? Is he at home there? Quickly, we got to move forward. Number three. We are graciously chosen by him. So quickly, follow me with me here. Verse 16, Jesus says, You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And just follow with me here because it was not the disciples who chose Jesus. It was Jesus who chose them. But that's not how the first century world worked. In the first century world, a disciple, a learner, would attach himself to the rabbi of his choice. So whatever rabbi he thought could get him the furthest, he would attach himself to that rabbi. But the disciples did not have that initiative. They didn't choose Jesus. Jesus said, I chose you. This is the point here. We have been chosen by Jesus for relationship. 
Hear it again. We've been chosen by him. And let me just say this. Let me hear this. Although I lift high the sovereignty of God, I lift high his power and authority over all things. I rejoice in his sovereignty. I trust in his sovereignty. I rest in his sovereignty. I praise him because of it. I also, at the same time, hold to the biblical teaching that man has been given freedom by God to exercise moral choices, and we are responsible. So at the same time I lift high God's sovereignty, I also lift up the responsibility of man. We are free. Hear this. We have free choice because God is sovereign. If God wasn't sovereign, God would never give man free choice because God would be afraid of what we would do. But because God is sovereign, he is able to override our choices and even able to work our stupidity, hear this, for our good and for his glory. That's how good our sovereign God is. That is amazing in what we have and what God has done, yet that is not where I want our focus to stay. Here's where I want our focus to stay. When Jesus picked the 12 disciples, did he understand the deficiencies within them? When he picked them, did Jesus know that Judas was going to betray him? Did he know that Peter was going to deny him? Did he know that Thomas was going to doubt him? Did he know that James and John, these sons of thunder, these brothers, had in their hearts to call down fire and destroy the whole Samaritan nation? Did he know that? Yes or no? Then why did he pick them? Why did he, if he knew that about them, if he knew their brokenness, if he knew all of those things, why did he pick them? One of my favorite stories is the story of a huge block of marble that was cut out of a quarry in Carrera, Italy. This massive block of marble was taken, taken to Florence, Italy, where the city council of Florence had decided they wanted a monument to enhance their city. They commissioned a sculptor to carve a giant statue to stand in front of their city hall. And someone suggested it be a biblical character that displayed beauty and strength but when this block was removed in front of the the council in front of this city hall it fell leaving a large fracture down one side consequently this gleaming block of marble lay on its side for the next 38 years untouched it was a source of embarrassment for all concerned artist after artist viewed the block of marble and rejected it until one day, an artist came by and got really excited and said, there is an angel trapped inside, and I'm going to set it free. And that artist was Michelangelo, and for three years, he worked on that flawed block of marble and brought it forth on January 25th, 1504, in what is called one of the greatest works of art ever, the Statue of David. Just think about Michelangelo's choice, and then think about God's choice. Because of the choice of God, hear this, we get God. We get God. Praise Him. We get Him. But He gets us. Oh, oh, He gets us. Like, we get Him. That is incredible news. He gets us. That's terrible news. I mean, that's the bad news bears kind of news. That's bad, very, very 
bad. He gets us cracked, flawed, not much value, and he makes us valuable. He makes us useful so that we are able to bear fruit. I was thinking about this yesterday. After the rain yesterday morning, I thought, hey, this would be a good time to maybe go outside in the front yard and start cutting some branches down from the tree because maybe, just maybe, the pollen got washed away. So as soon as I start grabbing this, I can't grab a tool in our house without Malachi hearing. And he wants to come outside with me. And what should have been probably a two-hour job turned into like a a four-and-a-half-hour job because Malachi just has to help me. He makes things longer. He makes things more difficult. Sometimes he tries my ever-loving patience. And here's the deal. I could do it way better without him. And don't miss this, brothers and sisters. God could do it perfectly without us. And yet he still chooses to use us and makes us usable for him. And we are able to bear fruit. And we are able to, Jesus says this, we pray and he answers our request. Don't miss this. Jesus' main point in saying, I chose y'all, was not to say, hey guys, I'm a Calvinist. That's not what Jesus was saying. What Jesus was saying is this, I didn't make you my friends because you were righteous. I didn't choose you because you're popular, rich, cool, and flawless. I chose you because you're, you're messed up, because you're cracked, because you don't have your life together. That's why I chose you. And what this means is this. We don't have to be afraid of Jesus discovering something about our lives that we think we've hidden from everybody else. He knows us. And he knows every crack in our lives. And hear this, he still loves us. I think we should hear this this morning. There's nothing that we can do to make Jesus stop loving us because there's nothing that we did to make him start loving us. We need to understand that reality. We are graciously chosen by him, but then number four, quickly, we will eternally find joy in him. We eternally find joy in him. Look at verse 11. You see on the screen, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I want to speak this morning to those in this room or those watching online that you are constantly in your own strength trying to do what only God can do in your life. That you are by your own strength trying to be a Christian. That you are by your own strength trying to bear fruit. If you are... Doing that in this moment, you will exhaust yourself. And I believe I'm speaking to some today that you are on the verge of absolute exhaustion. Or you're on the verge of just messing it all up and quitting. I can guarantee you there's no joy in that. There's no joy in trying to live the Christian life in our own strength, in our own power. And I can guarantee you that the answer is not try harder. The answer is not do better. The answer is recognize that Christ became what I can't become. Recognize that Christ did for me what I can't do for myself. And Jesus has spoken to his disciples and he spoke to us and he said this, that my joy, it's not our joy, it's his joy, may be in us and that our joy because of his joy may be full. And there's something that we often miss that I think that we need to Again, lay it out here that joy and happiness are not the same thing. Joy and happiness are not the same thing. One is a worthy pursuit. The other is an unworthy pursuit. Happiness is dependent upon what happens. And happiness is frail, is fragile. It can be affected by the external circumstances of our lives. We know this. We have felt this. In a moment, circumstances come upon us and our happiness is 
gone. And we're like, where did it go? It is gone. Yet joy is different from happiness. It's built not on external circumstances, but on ultimate spiritual realities. That I belong to Jesus, and he belongs to me, and I am positioned in his presence. And even on my worst days, when everything that I'm trying to build falls apart, even when the worst circumstances come at me, I have a resting place. I have a resting place. I rest in him. I rest in his love for me. And Jesus says, you will have joy and your joy may be full. Have you ever thought about this? Jesus is just a few hours away from the cross. In just a few hours, he will be beaten. Beyond an inch of his life, he will be hung on a cross to die for your sins and my sins. And what's on his mind right now? Joy. Like what? How in the world can that be? What in the world did Jesus know that we don't? Well, he knew who he was first. But follow with me here. In Hebrews 12, 2, it says this. For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. For the joy that was set before Jesus, he endured the cross. Which begs the question, for the joy of what? For the joy of what? Let me ask you a question. What did Jesus have after the cross that he didn't have before the cross? You know what the answer is? Us. Us. We are the joy that was set before him. Even that, yes, you, who look like you've been stuck in on lemons. Yes, you are the joy of Jesus. And you are what led him to the cross. The joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. And that matters. Oh, how that matters, brothers and sisters, because the God of the universe is serious about our joy about our deep-rooted confidence that he has us, that he is for us. And because he is for us, who can be against us? He loves us. He will make a way for us where there seems to be no way. Let me end by asking you this. Are you at home in him? Are you at home today in Jesus? And is he at home in you? Is Jesus at home in every compartment of your life? Is it his? Are you letting his word abide in you? Not just hearing it once a week. Are you reading his word, meditating upon his word, by his spirit, obeying his word? Are you abiding in his love for you? Not trying to do on your own, but abiding, resting in what he has done for you. Oh, that you would. Oh, that you would. I'm going to go ahead and ask the musicians to come forward. From the praise team, I'm going to ask... Everyone to stand, please, as we enter this time of invitation and consecration. And let me just say this. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, may today be the day of salvation for you. A day where you turn away from your sin, turn away from trusting in yourself, and turn to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. But let me also, in this moment, speak to the children of God in this room or watching online. May this also be a day that we come to the end of our own exhaustion, trying to do it ourselves. And may we once again find everything that we could ever need in abiding in him and him abiding in us. Let's pray. Father, we just look to you, Jesus, as the one who did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And we want to abide in you and we want you to abide in us. We want your word to abide in us. We want your love to abide in us, to make us fruitful.
that we would bear not just some fruit, but Jesus, you said much fruit. Oh God, just Holy Spirit work and move in our lives in a way that shows us, Lord, today how you're, how you're working in us. Maybe today it's drawing us to salvation, drawing us to Jesus for the first time. Maybe today it's drawing us out of this human picture of doing it on our own, in our own strength, and our own power, just to fail and get frustrated. And remind us, Jesus, that we're doing in all of our works what you never required us to do. That we would abide in you, be at home in you, Jesus, and that you, Jesus, would be at home in us. That we would abide and be at your word be at home in our lives. Your love be at home in us as we just rest upon it. That we don't have to earn it. God, we don't have to earn your love for us. Jesus, you did that. Just thank you, oh God. Finish this time. In Jesus' name, amen.